I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. Dennis Dutton was a philosopher of art and media. He was born in the U.S., but moved to New Zealand when he was 40, where he became interested in oceanic art. This interest led him to spend time in the village of Yenchen Mengua on Papua New Guinea. Over the course of his ethnographic work, he began to get to know the locals. One day, Dutton noticed that his friends in the village seemed down. He asked why. They explained that the tourist numbers had dropped, and they were trying to figure out ways to get more people to visit. Dutton was asked if he had any ideas. He sort of shrugged, then off the cuff suggested firewalking. The villagers had no idea what that was. Dutton explained. They asked him if he would teach them. Dutton had never done a firewalk of his own before, but he understood the principle behind it from his friends in New Zealand. Coal is a poor conductor of heat, so, in theory, one can scuttle across a bed of hot coals without getting burned if one moves with sufficient haste. The next day, he gave it a shot. And it worked. The villagers soon adopted it as their own local ritual, even taking measures to jealously guard it from neighboring tribes. Dutton later asked them, So what if some anthropologist visits your village in the future, inquiring about the origin of the firewalking ritual? What are you going to say? One of them responded, We'll say that we've always done it this way. Our fathers did it, and their fathers before them, and ultimately our ancestors learned how to do it from a white god. This story is from Ritual, the recent book by Demetrius Zigalatis. I think it illustrates something crucial about the way we're used to thinking about rituals, that they're a kind of cultural excess. They're for arbitrary reasons, not serving any specific purpose. Aren't all rituals like the one the villagers got from Dutton? At some point, someone just made them up, right? Rituals can seem antiquated, and us better-informed moderns are better off leaving them in the rearview mirror. But Demetrius's work shows this isn't the case. Rituals are useful for at least three separate reasons. In this conversation, we cover how research, including Demetrius's own, shows that rituals reduce anxiety, are crucial for social cohesion, and are an important source of meaning. Unlike most behavior, rituals aren't a means to an end. They aren't about achieving a goal or desired outcome. We do them for their own sake, because that's how things are done, how our forebearers did them. And it is precisely for this lack of immediate utility that makes them integral to meaning and identity. They separate our way of doing things from everyone else's. And as Demetrius argues, we're probably worse off in the modern world for our willingness to shave off the trappings of life's rituals in our relentless pursuit of increased efficiency. As always, if you'd like to subscribe to the full feed of my work, including my weekly newsletter, you can do so at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Demetrius Zigalatis. You run an experimental anthropology lab. What does that mean? It's pretty simple. So in... In academia, that very often we we have we, we split our knowledge of let's say human nature in this in this example on the basis of the the methods that we learn. So you have people working in in doing field work, for example, ethnographers, anthropologists, who will never use any kind of quantitative data, and then you have people working in in laboratory settings. Most psychologists do that, who may never interact with human beings in a, in a face-to-face conversation uh, as far as their research goes. 
And the idea is that maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. And the way to do that is, is by not by taking people out of their natural context and moving them into a lab, which is a very sterilized environment. And for some things, it's useful to do that. Of course, it is useful to do that. If you're studying the, the fundamentals of perception, for example, uh, it's very useful to have somebody in a lab looking at a screen. But if you're trying to understand cultural phenomena that are, that are so uh, deeply embedded in specific contexts, specific environments, specific material environments, and also cultural environments, it doesn't make sense to bring people out of that context and move them into a lab. You don't gain much knowledge by doing that. So the idea is that instead of doing that, we should bring the lab into context by moving it into the field. So in my lab, we rarely run lab studies. Sometimes we do, but most of the time, we what we do in the lab is we design the studies and we develop the methods and the technologies that we will then move into real life situations. And those include experiments that we do uh, and measurements that we do in uh, religious temples, in uh, sports stadiums, um, in the street, uh, in restaurants, wherever life happens. So my training is on the cognitive side side of things, but anyone who knows me or spent any amount of time listening to me or, or talking to me knows that I have a minor obsession with anthropologists for exactly the reason that you're talking about, that they're more inclined to study life in the spaces where it actually happens. So in the broad strokes, from your perspective, from the perspective of your lab, what do you get by combining this real-life anthropology approach with the cognitive science approach? What sort of stuff are you hoping to uncover or to shed more specific light on? What I hope to get is that I, I always tell my students that if you are to take two things away from your college education, what I think those two main things should be is A, a thorough understanding of the scientific process. And by that, I don't mean just uh, controlled experiments. I mean, the way in which we evaluate evidence and we proceed to test our hypotheses. And also a good understanding of how to, to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. And I think that's particularly important today when we have so much political polarization, for example, and we, we have people um, using social media and uh, that create echo chambers for them. And, uh, and very often we're tempted to never engage with the other side. And that's what anthropology offers, uh, a chance to, to understand the other side, whatever that other side is. So to, to spend meaningful time with other people. Sometimes people call uh, anthropology deep hanging out. And this is the idea that you, you just you stick around. You, just, you don't just show up to do your experiment and then leave. You spend time with these people. And the most interesting things you will learn are not when you're doing your survey across the table or when you have a notepad in your in your hands. Uh, uh, it is when you talk to them at the bar and um, in, in their homes and, and uh, on their fishing expeditions, as some anthropologists have, have done, and so on and so forth. So it's very important to combine these two uh, perspective, perspectives. So the, the control setting that the, uh, the laboratory offers, but also this... Uh, contextual knowledge that ethnographic work offers. So these are values that I find myself really in sympathy with. And so I want to keep them in mind as we start to talk about ritual, which is what your book is about. Uh, so to start off with, what is a ritual and 
What got you into studying them? Why do they matter? That sort of thing. If you ask 100 anthropologists, you might get 100 different definitions of ritual. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a key aspect of, of ritual is that it's either goal-demoted or it is causally opaque. And what that means is that when people perform their rituals, even the most meaningful rituals, when you ask them why, very often they they don't have a, a ready explanation for you. They'll say, oh, well, just do them. That's what we do. But even when they do offer some um, reason for doing those rituals, let's say we perform this ritual uh, for healing purposes, there is no causal connection between the actions undertaken and the purported outcome. So if I try to heal somebody by chanting, there, we don't see any physical causality between my, my, uh, the movements of my mouth and, and what's going on in, the, in that person's uh, body. So that is a key characteristic of ritual. An additional characteristic is that it's, uh, uh, rituals create special um, spaces and special events. They, they, they sort of they create the, the domain of the sacred. And this is what differentiates ritual, for example, from, from habits. So habits are, might be the flip side of, of our ritual. I, I take my coffee every morning, I brush my teeth uh, twice a day, and some people will say, this is, my, this is my morning ritual when I brush my teeth. But I would say no, because this has a, a specific purpose to clean your, your teeth, obviously. And the, and, the, and the actions you undertake are connected to the outcome. But if you were to just wave your toothbrush in the air with the belief that it would cleanse your teeth or no belief at all, now that would be a ritual. And that, so the, your second question was, what led me to study ritual? And it was exactly this, this disconnect between the means and the goals that makes it so fascinating. Because at first glance, rituals, by definition, uh, seem utterly pointless. But the fact that they are found in every human society we've ever known and the fact that so many people uh, around the world find them deeply meaningful, I would dare say all people find them deeply meaningful, even if they don't realize it, if they, they think of religious rituals. But then if, when we get into other things like your, your wedding or your, uh, your birthday ce- celebration or a funeral you attend, all of us find meaning in ritual. So this for me was the big puzzle. Why do people find meaning in those rituals if at first glance they all seem pointless? So there's one other thing that I want to sort of put up front here in terms of the motivation for this topic. Because when you say the word ritual, sometimes it feels, I don't know, maybe antiquated is the word that I want to to say. That like rituals are something that's, to use, again, not quite the right term, a primitive society would engage in. But us modern urbanites, you know, we sort of move beyond that and we do things because, well, they have you know, real life uh, effects and that sort of stuff. And we do our toothpaste, uh, you know, uh, habit because the, you know, nine out of 10 dentists recommend it. And that's why we do brushing our teeth and not waving around the toothbrush, et cetera. So how do you think about what it means for, uh, to perform a ritual in daily life in the modern world? And perhaps what are some of the examples of rituals that you study that your average person living today would uh, connect with? I think it would be, it's tempting, but it's misguided to, to think that, uh, we, that we no longer have as many rituals as, as people used to have because we're, we live in a, 
in an era of uh, technological progress and, and secularization. And the misconception stems from the fact that because ritual has been such a successful social, mental and social tool, it has been co-opted by, by religion to the extent that we come to, to think of those two things as synonymous, but they're not. Ritual predates religion and it extends far beyond religion. And I would argue that our lives today are just as ritualized as they've ever been. It's just a matter of, uh, of course, we have to be uh, careful with our definitions here. But based on my definition, ritual is everywhere. So in the modern world, we, uh, we engage in handshakes and we raise our glasses to make a toast and we attend birthday parties and we have college graduations. And in, in many parts of the world, we have military parades. And in our militaries, we have uh, marching and the raising of the flag and so on and so forth. There are countless examples. If we look at uh, how people behave in, in sports stadiums or in political rallies or uh, at uh, rock concerts or in their everyday life, our lives are full of rituals. Every important moment of our lives is shrouded in, in ritual from birth to, to death. So the way I see it, are, there, there's a, a human need for ritual. Rituals provide comfort for us. They help us soothe our anxieties. They help us connect with other people. And this need is a constant. What changes are the forms. And in fact, what you see is that the more religion retreats, organized religion retreats in the, in the West perhaps today, um, the more people seek this uh, form of meaning making into other domains. And they come up with other kinds of rituals perhaps of the kind that you find in uh, in Burning Man or, or other festivals or, or, or in the area of sports or other organized institutions, even the workspace. So let's get into the mechanism here. You sort of set me up for this in your answer here and in the, the previous question. What is it that makes ritual meaningful? What is going on there that takes... Uh, this ostensibly useless activity and gives it this really fundamental sense of how we create meaning in our lives. So this is a, this is a complicated answer because the, the reason rituals are so successful is that they're able to, to trigger a whole host of psychological mechanisms. So um, one of the ways in which rituals do things for us is that they, they help us soothe anxiety. And this is a very old idea that anthropologists have, have uh, proposed over a century ago. For a very long time, this was simply either taken for granted or at least it went untested. But now we have evidence for it. We know, for example, uh, from studies, including my own studies, that when we put people in, in, in a room and we stress them up, their behaviors become more ritualistic. They be, become more repetitive. And then when we look at what happens when they perform these behaviors, both in a, in a decontextualized setting, when we have them engaged in repetitive movements, we see that anxiety levels drop. We can see this both in their, in their minds, so they, they perceive their anxiety levels as being lower, they feel less stressed, um, and in their bodies. Their electrodermal activity decreases, their heart rate variability increases, and so on and so forth. Their cortisol levels drop. We also see it in, in real-life rituals. We've done studies in Mauritius where we measured people's stress levels uh, as they performed rituals in a religious temple, a Hindu temple, 
compared to a control group. And we see that after performing those rituals, they people feel better. They they have lower anxiety levels, both psychological and and, and biological. How do the, the rituals do that? What is the the mechanism? So we have proposed that this is related to um, to the way our brain works and the way our, our brain constantly seeks patterns in the world. Our brain makes predictions all of the time. Before I finish a sentence, you're, you have a certain prediction in your mind about what my next sentence is going to be. You've already predicted that verb. Uh, when we drive, we make predictions about where every other car in our own car will be in a few, a few seconds from now, and so on and so forth. It's a very efficient cognitive architecture that I think will inevitably evolve given given evolutionary potential. That's what where, where advanced intelligence will move towards. And if we ever have true artificial intelligence, it would have to work in the same way. We'd have to be able to make all these inferences. A, a byproduct of this architecture is that when we don't have the capacity, when our environment does not allow us to make um, successful predictions, we get very stressed. The thing we experience as stress, perhaps more than anything else, is uncertainty. And this is why you see that those domains of life that uh, have high stakes and high uncertainty are full of ritualization. So if you go to a casino, you will see that gamblers are notorious for their superstitions and rituals. If you go to a sports stadium, you see the same. If you go to a war zone, again, you see the same. And ritual provides structure. Provide It is predictability. When I do a ritual, because I've always done it the same way, I know exactly what will happen, when, and how it will happen. So this give you, gives you a sense of control over the situation. And of course, this control may be illusory, but it doesn't matter. We know that it works. We know that it helps you reduce your anxiety. So this is one piece of the puzzle. Ritualization comes naturally to us, and it feels good. Other related mechanisms are... Um, one of them is is what we call effort justification. And, and this idea refers to a whole host of different related theories, but uh, they all make the same observation, uh, that we, um, we our brain makes inferences about the value of things. And one of the ways it uses to make those, one of the cues it uses to make those inferences is how costly they are. In my early fieldwork, um, my doctoral fieldwork, I, I, I spent um, some time living with a group of people called the Anastenaria in northern Greece, and they performed firewalking rituals. What I realized there was that the meaning for their participation in those rituals was produced through participation itself. And what I mean by this is when I asked the, the youngsters, why do you do this ritual? Most of them will just look at me and they say they would say things like, I felt this urge to do it, or that's what people do around here. And then you ask the elders, and they had more specific ideas. They were idiosyncratic, so they were different by the individual. Some of them said, I do this for the crops to grow, or I, I did it to seek healing, and I, I, just, I do it because something terrible would happen if I didn't, and so on and so forth. But then I looked into the ethnographic record, and a few decades ago, anthropologists used people's real names. Today, most of the time, we use pseudonyms. But I was able to go and track the same individuals. So someone who told me I did it to get healed today, maybe 30 years ago, they told somebody else, I don't know why I did it. I just felt this urge. But when you invest so much effort into an activity, it automatically feels 
more meaningful. This is a fair assumption to make. Some of the, um, um, the best things in life come at a cost, right? You get what you pay for. You, you raise children and, and you, you put a lot of effort in, in building things and, and so on and so forth. So our, our brain automatically infers value from effort. And this is why some of the things that, don't, that seemingly don't have any inherent value, things like running marathons or climbing Mount Everest, or performing very painful rituals, or in, or investing a lot of time, uh, week after week after week, thousands of hours, let's say, memorizing the the Torah or or attending church, those things too create meaning for us. The the first time anybody goes to a temple, for the vast majority of individuals, as as children, it's because their parents take them. It's not because they had a some kind of a, an epiphany. But do this long enough, and, the, and it begins to become very meaningful. So that's another piece of the puzzle, and there are many. But one last thing I will uh, I will stress here is the the ability of ritual to forge uh, social connections. So that's very important to us. It creates a sense of collective identity, a sense of belonging, uh, a, a sense of bonding. How does it do that? Through again through multiple mechanisms. One of those is related to what we call phenotypic matching. Other animals do this as well, but uh, we also do it a lot. And that is that we we derive um, kinship ties. Uh, so we make assumptions about, about human uh, connections and, and kinship based on a variety of cues. And one of those cues is similarity. We know that phenotype and genotype are, are closely track one another for the most part. So people who look more like me, the more they look like me, the more likely they they are to be related to me. And rituals are very good at doing this. They align people's um, appearances. Perhaps we wear the same clothes, the same makeup. They align people's movements. We all march together. We chant together. They align people's emotional responses. We have evidence from various rituals that when people perform collective rituals, even their heart rates begin to synchronize. So they feel like one. Uh, And by doing all of those things, people feel closer to each other. It it is no accident that in so many ritual contexts, participants call each other their brethren. And we talk about things like fraternities and sororities and all those things, what they invariably have in common are ritualized behaviors. So they have a, rituals recruit a host of different mechanisms to um, to provide meaningful experiences for people. There's several things I want to touch on in that. I think maybe I'll start with the second point about effort justification. So another way of putting that is that rituals derive their meaningfulness from friction. It's the fact that they don't accomplish anything of themselves. They're not instrumental. They're not actually the thing that is getting you whatever the further reward or end that you want is. And what I like about that thesis um, is that it's at odds in many ways, I think, with the way we typically think about meaning, which I think a lot of us intuitively believe that there's such thing as intrinsic meaning. This was actually something I was talking about with Paul Bloom in one of my more recent episodes that I did um, was that when we talk about things that we find meaningful, a lot of the times 
it's this small list of, you know, having kids, rewarding careers, you know, these things that have very clear goal orientation where it's, it's, it's clear why you're doing them. And instead you're kind of saying, Hey, look, here's something that by its very nature is inane in a way. And yet this is this crucial thing that we are taking what's devoid of intrinsic meaning and using it as a pillar to construct our meaningful engagement with the world. Does that sound like a, a fair characterization of, of, of that? Or, or do you disagree yeah, with that? And, and in fact, when you think about it, some of the, the things that are both are, are the most meaningful to us, but also the very things that make us human, that really distinguish us from other animals, are precisely those kinds of things that have no inherent, uh, no intrinsic meaning. There are things like art and music and dancing and ritual and group membership, sometimes in very arbitrary ways, things like sports fanship, for example, or our groups based on other kinds of preferences and hobbies and, and what have you. It's all of those things. Um, one of the one of the things that the arbitrariness of those actions does in the ritual context is that precisely because those actions are arbitrary and have no inherent meaning, it allows them to take whatever meaning we we wish. So whatever the uh, uh, the ideology of the group is, uh, these rituals are very a very good way of reinforcing that ideology. Whatever the group itself is. Those arbitrary actions allow us to distinguish this group from what other people do, because there's an infinite way, um, uh, array of things we could be doing in the context of a ritual. If I want to clean my hands uh, as a utilitarian action, there are only a few ways of doing this. The, I can use water and, and soap or an antiseptic or and so on and so forth. But if I want to uh, conduct a purification ritual, then I can do any number of things. I can use blue paint, or I can use ashes, or I can I can use blood, or I, I can use dirt or water, and so on and so forth, or just symbolic gestures. And that means that we can choose an action that will be specific and unique to our own group. And that makes it special for us. It creates those associations with uh, one of, with the most salient part of our identity, our group membership. I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of efficiency. Um, so I think a lot of times in, in modern life, what we're striving for is increased efficiency. And when I hear theories like yours describing, okay, let's look at this specific instance and try and understand how we make meaning from it. It seems like a core component of what we're doing when we find something meaningful is that we're identifying something inefficient about it. And it's almost through a kind of cognitive dissonance of saying, well, I'm not doing this because it's the most direct way to achieve a goal. Otherwise I would do this other thing. Um, and like you say, with your informants from previous ethnographic work, sometimes they just say, well, I don't know. We're just, we're just this is how we do it. It seems to me like that impulse to streamline and to make life of an increasingly uh, efficient nature actually takes away from a lot of the fabric of meaning that you're describing in things like ritual, social connection, 
uh, the ability of ritual to create, as you said uh, earlier on, space, all of those sort of things. Um, does that sound does that sound right to you? One way to respond to this would be to flip it on its head and to say that, in fact, rituals, just because they're, they don't have direct utility, does not mean that they're less efficient. In fact, sometimes they might be seen as uh, mental shortcuts. So imagine a situation. Let's take two examples, the, the individual level and the collective level. At the individual level, uh, imagine that you're very stressed. Uh, you're, you're facing a, a, a major threat. Perhaps you're concerned about illness. There are things you can do to reduce your, your stress. Um, you, you can start working on, on the psychological processes. Perhaps you can, you can talk to someone. Uh, you can go out for, for a walk. There's any number of things you can try to do. But if a ritual works, that might be the, the easiest way of dealing with this. If what is familiar already works, if it helps you reduce your anxiety, then it doesn't really mean uh, it doesn't really matter if it's uh, if it's an arbitrary action as long as it works for you. In the collective context, now think of a group that uh, that is facing very high stakes. So we know from historical evidence that groups that face higher stakes, for example, the uh, tribes that uh, are, are under constant threat of warfare, they have more painful initiation rituals. Now, the problem that this group needs to solve is uh, the problem of cooperation and trust. When you're going out to, um, to war or hunting or any kind of high-stake activity, you want to have a very cohesive uh, team uh, of made up of very trustworthy individuals who are really committed to this, uh, to their group membership. Now, the best way to find out Perhaps the best utilitarian way is to, to go to war and then see who who is a good, uh, who is brave and and who will um, defect and run away. But there's also another way of doing this. Uh, some high intensity initiation rituals precisely simulate those uh, conditions in a safe space. So what they do is that they ha- they get people to pay a high price in advance, and that functions as a, as a test of their loyalty, as a test of their commitment. If I'm will, if I'm willing to, in order to let's say, uh, to join um, an elite corps of um, of soldiers, if I'm willing to go through hell week and and suffer for for an entire week, then I'm truly committed. If I'm willing to uh, to endure a brutal beating in order to join a gang or a fraternity, then I'm truly committed to this. And since you mentioned Paul Bloom, I, I'll I'll get to an example that he gave. Uh, in his previous book, he says that the, he describes this uh, election for a fraternity um, president, and there were three candidates. So the first pr- uh, candidate uh, steps up in front of the the fraternity and says, "If I'm elected, I'll do X, Y, and Z." And the second candidate steps up and says, "If I'm elected, I'll do A, B, and C." And the third one steps up, takes. Uh, uh, a piece of paper with uh, the fraternity's insignia, takes a stapler and staples it onto his chest. Now, this is an act that has, that is, that has no direct function and is completely arbitrary. But by doing this, there was no better uh, signal of loyalty and commitment and willingness and desire to be the leader of that group. And, and he was elected. So that's the kind of thing that rituals do. 
the, the indirect way, the, the, the more direct way might also be uh, in the long run more effortful. So you could you could put in years of, of work or you could go out to war and then we can test your, your bravery. But there are ways of taking shortcuts. And, and in this sense, perhaps rituals are are not as wasteful as they seem. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me and I really appreciate it like a lot, but even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday, if you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. There's something that comes to mind in a few of these examples that you've mentioned. And it has to do with the connection between environment and behavior. And in particular, what I'm thinking of is this sort of I forget where I originally saw it, but it's a theoretically derived idea that in an environment which is hostile, in which most actions will not lead to high reward states, then that predicts that when you find something that works, you should continue to do it. You should be in the sort of computer scientific terms, uh, high exploit, low explore. And I think this resonates with a lot of what you're saying which is that a lot of where we find the most ritualistic behavior, whether that is an event within a society or a particular society versus another one, we can kind of predict the level of ritualization based off of the hostility of the environment, to use the same term there. Um, because if you find uh, an avenue that leads to a good outcome, well, do it again because the world's not that favorable. So you no reason to try something different. I think that's interesting from a general perspective on like essentially a rational defense of conservative conservatism of, of why an individual uh, would have conservative tendencies. And in, in particular with what we're talking about right now, highly ritualized, um, which we think of as sort of uh, formal and more conservative and more along the lines of things of, of religion, that sort of stuff. I think it's an interesting perspective on why that would be, in a sense, the optimal move under given uh, assumptions about the world in which you're living in. Yes. What you're saying reminds me of the work of Michel Gelfand, 
who draws upon anthropological work by Brad Pelto and, and others, but she talks about tight and loose cultures. Uh, a tight culture is one that has high agreement between its members. They're, um, they, they adhere to the norms and they feel very passionate about the norms and maintaining the norms, ritual included. And a loose one is where, one where people are more free to break the norms. And the argument there is that when uh, um, in a more stressful environment, so under times of hardship, let's say there's a there's an epidemic or there's a there's a war, people will um, tend to to adhere more to a to a tight pattern of of culture. And there's a lot to this, and we see this with ritual in in general. That one of the main um, ways in which ritual derives its authority is its connection to tradition. Now, with some things, we don't we don't feel this way. If I told you that my computer is 15 years old, you'll probably think it's junk. You don't think it's a, it's, it's a good thing that it's very old. But if I tell you that the ritual we're performing is a thousand years old, this gives it an aura of, of authority. Because in our minds, this allows us to, to, first of all, it means that it's been uh, tried and, and tested and it worked, right? It, it, cultural traditions go through a process of cultural selection. This is, this is different than biological evolution in the sense that it doesn't operate at the level of, of the gene, but the principle is exactly the same. Every day, myriad rituals um, are invented. Very few of them will survive for, for more than a few years. The ones that have survived for decades, centuries, and, or, or millennia are the ones that have worked for our ancestors. So that's one aspect. It's the, this idea that... Uh, an old tradition is a useful tradition, but there's also the uh, the symbolic connection to a society that extends beyond our own place and time. So by taking part in the same ritual that my people have done for thousands of years, uh, I'm now a member of that group that involves my my ancestors and and my and I can see further down my my descendants. And those two uh, parts make uh, ritual particularly meaningful. There was a very interesting study coming out of the, I think it was out of uh, Berkeley a few years ago, where they asked Americans how they would feel if different national holidays were altered. And they looked at uh, national holidays like uh, President's Day, which are not associated with a lot of rituals. And people felt blasé about that. But when they asked them about those national holidays that were highly ritualized, things like Christmas and Thanksgiving, they felt more outraged at the very idea that, that those uh, traditions would be altered. And in fact, this has happened before. Uh, FDR changed Thanksgiving. He moved Thanksgiving a week earlier so that people would spend more money during, during the extended holiday period and, and the market would benefit. So it's the most American idea ever. And yet people were livid about this. Most states and their governors uh, refused to enforce the uh, uh, the new law. And uh, people protested in the streets. They wrote uh, vicious articles about it. They called it Franksgiving. And eventually he had to back down. They, they came to a compromise. So today, Thanksgiving in the U.S. is... Uh, uh, is is held somewhere in between the original date and and that one. So you see, people have intuitions about the importance of tradition and the importance of this, uh, the importance of continuity. And this is also why um, 
we have the idea that our rituals are unchanged, not just unchangeable, but also unchanged. And this is something as an anthropologist I've seen a lot of times when I ask people, um, when they say this ritual has been handed down the generations and it's always been this this way. And then I point to to this or that detail. I say, well, you used to to sacrifice an animal and now you, this has been replaced by by fruit in the Hindu tradition, for example. And they go, well, yes, but this was for practical reasons. Maybe the animals were too expensive or we decided to spare them. But other than that, the ritual is unchanged. And then you point to another change. And they go, yes, but other than that, the ritual is unchanged. This is important to us. It feels important to have the sense of continuity. So I want to try and connect this up to, a, I guess you could call it a general theory of, of meaning, now that we've covered some ground on ritual in particular. And when I think about meaning, I think about three principles. This is not a holistic theory. This is just sort of my kind of heuristic take on how meaning works. And so the first is that meaning is contextual. Um, this is why you know, the anthropology stuff, uh, like you said, not taking behavior out of its original habitat and putting it into a sterile lab, looking at it where it actually exists, that's why it's so crucial for studying meaning. Because once you take a behavior out of context, the, the sort of meaning evaporates. And there's so much that you've said that I feel really articulates that well. One thing that I really loved is how you said that rituals are important for creating a sense of space. In a very literal sense, rituals are important for creating the context in which a behavior happens. Um, that's one thing. Uh, my second uh, principle of meaning is that meaning is post-talk, um, uh, that meaning comes after the fact, after something has happened. We, we're looking back on something. It's not something that we can prospect until something has happened. Once the story's over, then we can look back and say what it meant. And I think that's really spoken to with some of the, the stuff you're talking about with, with tradition and being passed down from generation to generation, as well as the instance that you gave where you tracked down the same informant 30 years later. Um, and at first they're like, oh, well, I don't really know why I do this. Then they came up with an explanation for it over the course of having done it um, you know, for, for, for so long. So I love that. And then also uh, the final one, the third, the third uh, principle is meaning is interpretive. So I think this is really along the lines of the, the effort justification stuff, the, the, the sort of cognitive dissonance of like, well, I'm doing this. It's not to like gain this immediate tangible advantage or reward. Um, so where does that come from? And that is kind of the nuts and bolts of the meaning making process in that interpretive move that people are doing there. And so I feel like there's so much about um, what you've shown in, in, in ritual and your research in your book that um, for me really outlines some of the core ways I think about how how meaning works at a more general level. Does that sort of square, does that sound right to you? Am I, um, uh, what, what do you make of that? Absolutely. And there, and there are really a lot of things I could say here. Let me, I'll try to quickly say two things. So one thing you you mentioned is that meaning is often created by, by ritual. It's created by these symbolic acts. And here's an example. In my field site of the last uh, 14 years or so, which is the island of Mauritius in the middle of the Indian Ocean, the majority of the population are, are of Indian origin and they're Hindus. And there's this um, lake at the, the heart of the island. It's uh, inside a volcanic crater. And there's a legend connected to it. 
that about a hundred years ago, a Hindu priest had a dream uh, uh, that revealed the, the location of a, a sacred lake. And this is very common. It's a very common narrative, a very common kind of myth found in many cultures. And after a, a few days of walking through a rainforest, he found a lake and went back and told everybody. And this lake uh, became uh, the, the site of a pilgrimage, which was the equivalent of the. So it was the Mahasivaratri. And um, uh, it means the great night of Shiva. And you have this pilgrimage in, the, um, in India. And this is uh, held in, well, there, there are specific beliefs about the importance of the Ganges. So from the, beginning, from the outset, when the, the lake was found, there was this notion that it is connected somehow to the Ganges. And then decades later, in the 1970s, a delegation of the Mauritian government flew to India took a bottle of water from the Ganges, uh, came back to Mauritius and organized a big public ritual and, and poured this bottle into the lake. And, and now this lake has been symbolically connected to the Ganges. And this, this notion of sacredness has been reinforced. Today, this lake is the destination to the largest Hindu pilgrimage in the world outside of India. More than half of the population of the entire island, over half a million people, will walk to that lake every year to, uh, to perform the Mahasivaratri. So these symbolic acts can actively create meaning for, for rituals, uh, for, for, for events or for places. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is this connection between individual meaning and, and collective identity. If you think about the kinds of things that make you yourself, not the not the things that that give you a, a vague sense of identity. Like you you might be British or you you might be Greek or um, these are the kinds of things that are not particular to to you as an individual. But the kinds of things that make you you are are some highly emotional experiences. Sometimes they can be traumatic experiences or they can be very joyful experiences. What are the moments in your life that are that have shaped you as a person? We tend to call these autobiographical memories. It's that time you survived an accident, that time you, you were under fire in the battlefield, or that time you, you won the championship, or whatever it was. Those are extremely um, arousing, emotionally arousing events, and they tend to be deeply meaningful to us. And they trigger this search for meaning. Why did this happen to me? Why did I survive the accident? Right? How did I, did I achieve this, this goal? Why did I marry this person? And so on and so forth. What, what some rituals do is that they, they engineer these highly arousing, highly emotional situations, and they do that in a, in a collective context. So if we take part in, a, in the same initiation ceremony that involves things like uh, fasting or sensory deprivation or, or even intense pain, there, there are initiation rituals that might involve piercing the body with, with skewers or, or enduring uh, bullet ant bites that are, that are said to be the most uh, painful uh, insect sting that one can experience or beatings by the group and so on and so forth. When we endure these hardships together, then my sense of who I am as a person and my sense of who I am as a group member begin to fuse together. Now it's one and the same. We have gone through the same experience together. We have laughed and cried together. We have suffered together. Who are the people you typically laugh and cry and suffer together? They're your closest family. So by doing this, by merging this uh, these meaningful experiences for the individual and for the group rituals can also 
create a, a sense of uh, close kinship and they can make our group membership also more meaningful. What a wonderful example. And we could probably go on for another hour unpacking everything that's going on in there. But I'll ask you one last one last thing on on, on ritual and, and meaning. And that is so what should we do with this information? Is the is the implication here that we would all be slightly better off, in particular on the meaning front, by trying to come up with new rituals. And I mean that either as in, you know, participating in whatever thousand-year-old rituals are around the corner and that sort of stuff. So maybe there is already, you know, some stuff that we could we could slot into, so to speak. Uh, or just, you know, things like family vacation, you know, as a as a ritual or like, oh, this is how we celebrate Christmas. This is how we do the, you know, the the ceremonies and stuff here. Is that do you, is that the takeaway for you uh, on a, on a sort of pragmatic front from from having studied all this? Yes, I think the main takeaway from this is that the things that uh, might appear to be irrational, if they they seem to work for so many people, then they're then they're worth uh, investigating, exploring, and and of course uh, adopting and and incorporating into our lives. It's no accident that every human society has had rituals. Now. For many of us, our, our lives are, are radically different than those of our ancestors. We're more mobile. We tend to, to have more fluid social networks. So we're not bound by tradition as, as much as our ancestors were. And this can sometimes it can create a, a gap in, in meaning. And we see levels of depression and, and suicide. They're, they're spiking around the world, uh, anxiety levels. So these kinds of practices if they've worked for so long i think there it's it's worth considering the possibility that they might work for us as well and in fact as a researcher i know that they do so i too see myself as a very rational person i don't have any supernatural uh, commitments uh, but i tend to see ritual as 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 i as i said at the beginning i see it as both predating religion and extending far beyond religion it is not about something supernatural uh, if you're willing to concede that uh, things like art and music are deeply meaningful to humans, then I don't see why you wouldn't concede that rituals too uh, are also deeply meaningful and are also um, not just useful, but they're uh, a core part of leading a, a good and a meaningful life. Final question then, what are three books that have most influenced the way you think? I'll mention three books written in very different times. But uh, they're, they've been very influential in my own thinking about the world. So the first one, I think I have to start with uh, Darwin's Origin of Species. Now, most people have, everybody knows about Darwin's theory, but most people haven't read his, his writings. Uh, I think Darwin is, an, is a very good writer, and he, he makes an excellent case in The Origin of Species. In fact, he, he held back on publishing this book for over 20 years. He called it a draft always, because he was insecure. He wanted to strengthen his argument because of the major implications. So he brings in examples from geology and, and, and animal breeding and, and, and uh, so many different species that he has studied. Example after example after example, he makes a very careful case. And I think it's an excellent uh, way for a scientist to, to proceed in a very careful evaluation of the evidence, reaching the inevitable conclusion. 
uh, another book that had a, a profound impact on my uh, my thinking was uh, E.O. Wilson's book Consilience. And there he makes this argument that in modern academia, our knowledge is fragmented along disciplinary lines. But if we truly want to understand the natural world, and also the, that, that, of course, also means the, the human world, human nature, we have to do it holistically. We have to incorporate perspectives from the natural sciences, the evolutionary sciences, and the humanities. And uh, the third book is something written more recently uh, by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And it's a book called Connected. I ended up translating this book into Greek uh, eventually. And this is a book that talks about the uh, the impact of our social networks on on pretty much everything we can think of. The, uh, the influence of other people in our own lives. The Our membership in all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different groups can have profound influences on our behavior, our beliefs, our attitudes, not just the people you know, but even the the people they know and the people they know. So I think what all these three books have in common is that they allowed me to see the interconnectedness of things and sort of step back and look at the look at the forest. Those are uh, three great choices. Demetrius, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Demetrius Zigalatis. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. That is the main feed for my content, where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support the show. You can find it at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And if you happen to be listening on Spotify, please consider giving The Meaning Lab podcast a five-star rating. It takes four seconds. If you are on The Meaning Lab homepage, uh, where it shows the logo and says follow or following, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show, select the fifth star, and press submit. That's it. And it does help a ton in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of the Meaning Lad podcast. Mm-hmm.